Hi, this is Rachel in Recovery. We're here with Tia Levings, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself and then answer some questions. Hi, I'm glad to be here today. Um, yeah, like a bio. We should start with a bio, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm an author who um, wrote a memoir called A Well-Trained Wife. It's now available for pre-order. It's the story of my escape from Christian patriarchy. I was in the Bill Gothard um, Institute of Basic Life Principles, but also a, a Southern Baptist fundamentalist church that became more restrictive as I grew. Um, and then we went into um, Reformed theology and very high control Presbyterianism. Um, and there's a whole lot of plot points along the way in that. Um, I educate on the abuses in Christian fundamentalism online today on all social platforms. And um, that's usually how people find my work. And I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, what was the realization that you were in a spiritually abusive community? This is an interesting question because um, I think spiritual abuse is probably the last component that dawned on me. Um, because I was in a very physically violent situation, uh, sexual, financial, emotional, psychological, all of those abuses took the forefront. Um, and it was not until I had escaped my situation, um, had been years in trauma recovery, that we started to put words to what landed me in that situation in the first place, which was spiritual abuse and religious trauma, but it didn't have language. This was about 10 years ago. It didn't have language. And it's interesting where we are recording this today because my friend, uh, Dr. Laura Anderson has written a book called, um, when religion hurts you. It's the first, um, therapeutic research and resource that's specifically for religious trauma. And it's the book I wish I had 10 years ago that would have helped me, you know, realize that I was in a spiritually abusive situation if I'd had the verbiage for it. So I'm looking forward to the power of that kind of work and the things that happen online because um, the more people share their stories, the more others can realize the spiritual abuse um, is often the foundation for all the other abuses. It helps form your identity and your nervous system responses and your trauma responses and you know everything, the way that you interact with the world um, can be tied so deeply to your spiritual formation. Oh, yeah. I, I I have friends that have been experienced some of the similar abuses and I think when you add spiritual abuse it just it adds so many extra layers of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I agree with that. Uh, I you know, you can recover from a lot of things and get better. I think when somebody abuses you using God and using the church, it just compounds it so much more. Not hair traumas, mm -hmm. but I just, I've seen the recovery and it just takes a lot longer. It's so um, integral to your core of, of how you understand yourself and um, and your source of comfort and refuge, you know, there's nowhere to go when they violate your spirituality. Um, yeah. So I, I empathize with that and relate to it. Um, you were recently on shiny, happy people. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, and it's exciting time for Shiny Happy People as well because we were just nominated for a Critics' Choice Award awesome. yesterday. Um, yeah, it it Shiny Happy People was a documentary project that was untitled that came my way as a result of my internet work. Um, the producers um, were referred to me um, through another participant on the show, another castmate, and. I went and recorded it without really fully understanding what the project was going to be. I just knew that I was ready to participate in something very visible and gave it my best. And none of us castmates met each other or, you know, there wasn't a lot of cohesiveness around the project. Deadline got pushed back a couple times. We didn't really know what, what we were making, what we were participating in, but we trusted the producers really well like they seemed to have the heart of the story and the heart of survivors as their first priority and um it turned out to be the best instinct for all of us we all are just very proud and gratified to have been part of a project that is um, illuminating the way those abuses happen and the impact that it's happening on our wider culture um and and it broke all the records at Amazon and it debuted, you know, really high. And it's been, it's been a fun ride. Um, yeah. And is there anything specific you want to know about finding out? I, mean, I mean, that's like high um, overview. I mean, as somebody who grew up in the Baptist church, I mean, we're, we were on the outskirts of, you know, the Bill Gothry, you know, it was, we knew people cause we were homeschooled, but we were not in that mm -hmm. camp so to speak we 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 knew people right. but we were not in it we weren't wander the mm -hmm. james dobson arena which which yes um i think what i hope is a lot of people take away is how related all of these names are bill gothard and james dobson you know were contemporaries their, their work influenced one another there's um enough there to say that they had a working friendship um, and the followers use a lot of the same resources. So a lot of the IBLP followers um, also, you know, were listening to Adventures in Odyssey and reading Strong World Child and participating in all of Dobson's focus on the family ministries. Um, and the, also the way that the IBLP worked, like I was also not a um, paid member. I didn't attend any conferences, but I was mentored by people using um the IBLP's message as an evangelism tool, and they recruited within churches. So um, they were heavily influencing our church and our wider denomination. So we were part of Southern Baptist Convention, and my church uh, was pastored by one of the presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention, and is very much under the influence of the Institute of Basic Life Principles. But most of the membership would not have even known that. What they knew was... Um, there were these upstanding families with lots of children who are also involved in leadership and they're good Christians that we should all aspire to be. Um, and so their lifestyle and behaviors would trickle down into our congregation, but nobody knew, you know, top of mind that they were participating in Bill Gothard's belief system. I can see that. I mean, I pro that makes sense why we saw remnants, but we were not a part of it. Right. Because I went to a lot of Baptist churches during the 90s, I would say. Yeah, that's the highlight. So, yeah. 
90s, early 2000s. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about that? Yeah, about yeah, Chinese yeah. people or the either. Um, not, not nothing specific comes to mind. I mean, I think one of the best parts of Chinese Happy People is the actual fourth episode where it shows the wider political strategy that is impacting America. And it's, these are not people who just are politically active, you know, as is their American right. These are people who are using the political system in order to promote their dominionism theology, which is to take over the world. They don't really believe in religious freedom for everyone. They want to use America's, you know, platform of religious freedom so that they can gain their stronghold. And I think the documentary did a good job of demonstrating some of the behind the scenes infrastructure that's in place to work through super PACs and young leadership. Um, that is, that's impacting our headlines and our laws, you know, as we speak, the, the country is becoming more conservative as a result of those efforts. Yes. I would say there's a teeny tiny bit of good in that and a lot of bad. <laughs> well, diversity is good, right? And everyone is entitled to their personal beliefs and that is what America was founded on. Um, we, democracy values, uh, you know, pluralistic voices and that's what's getting lost um, but by design because in the IBLP and in other fundamentalist groups, they don't believe in pluralism. And um, they're not working towards that pluralism. So they don't really want everybody to have a seat at the table. Um, yeah, it's, you know. Okay. Um, I think that's that's a great point to bring up. Um, you've written some books. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, well, I have some little books that are of no consequence <laughs> that I, in my journey, in my journey to become an author, um, the one that's worth talking about is A Well-Trained Wife, um, which is coming out with St. Martin's Press, um, August of 2024, and it is now open for pre-orders. It opened last week. Um, and it's the story of how I got in and out of fundamentalism, um, and all the things that I learned, you know, changed and journeyed in the path to myself, coming home to myself as a result of um, that, like, 40-year journey to be, to, to, to lose myself in high-control religion, find myself again and pull us out of it into safety and recovery. Um, one of the things that sets my book apart from other cult memoirs is that um, I do spend a chunk of time um exploring what recovery looked like and what it meant um because that is the ultimate character arc i was a person before high control religion got me and <laughs> returned in recovery back to my own autonomy and that's the journey that i wanted to tell um it's not just a series of bad things that happened to me it's they were they were part you know plot points on a, on a journey that i have come through um, and I hope that it's inspiring to other survivors to know that they can overcome the hard things that happen to them too. Like trauma, one of the things I say frequently is that trauma already took your past. It shouldn't get to take your present and your future too. So recovery is the tool that helps us take our lives back. Yes. Um, that's a lot of the reason I do this show. We talk more about recovery than what happened in the past because we don't need to relive it. We don't need to, mm -hmm. we can get the highlights and 
people can use their imaginations from there. So, I mean. Yeah. Um, speaking of recovery, what have you done for recovery? What? <laughs> A shorter question might be what I have not done. Um, I'm very, very fierce about my recovery. I feel like I'm my first advocate before I expect anyone else to advocate for me or to fight for me or to provide for me. Um, I try to show up for myself. So that has been like manifested in a way that means I will try. If someone says a modality is having success for other survivors, um, I looked for caregivers who were skilled at it and I gave it a shot. Um, it looks like being really religious almost <laughs> about my self-care, like understanding that, no, I can't skip my creature needs. Um, and that's probably an ongoing, you know, balance because life happens and trauma happens and activation you know comes with seasons and waves so personal self-care is sometimes challenging to keep at the forefront um but it's absolutely essential you know to um having what it takes to recover recovery is really hard work and it's brave and it's um involves the nervous system and the emotions so much that if you're not feeding your body and drinking water and moving and giving yourself um, time to hear yourself think is a really big one. Um, you'll be overcome either by your past and the damage that was done or by other voices who, you know, are looking for pliable young minds to control. <laughs> like cult topping is a very real phenomenon. Um, people will leave one toxic environment and fall into another simply because they're more familiar with that that dynamic you know their bodies just find a familiarity to it and it's easier and it's not always very conscious so to make it that conscious and to make that something that um uh you can see you know um that takes determination and and very specific intentionality so i've tried all the big trauma modalities um EMDR and brain spotting and somatic experience and, and awareness, um, embodiment. Uh, I tried cognitive behavior therapy. I didn't find it to be very helpful for trauma. And that's, um, a very common, uh, testimonial for trauma survivors. Um, simply talking about your trauma can be very re-traumatizing and not very effective in rewiring the brain and how, it, how we, how we experience, you know, what happened to us in waves in the, in the recovery process um a lot of it's been a health journey like just taking care of my body and um dealing with all the things when the body keeps the score that that like manifests in physical symptoms so a lot of recovery has been dealing with like the migraines and panic attacks anxiety attacks night terrors night sweats um all the things that come with it the aches and pains the chronic fatigue stuff that comes up as a result of trauma symptoms. A lot of trauma survivors have chronic illness um, and so much amazing, exciting research has been doing, done recently to show that that's a trauma, that's trauma that's sorting your body. And if you can heal the trauma, then you indirectly heal the symptom. Um, so that's been a big part because I, I've had, I have a whole separate story that's just medical health that turned out to all be related to my trauma experiences that okay. um, I won't, I won't seed, you know, I won't seed. I won't give up more of my life to what happened. How has this affected your family? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, family is a very fluid thing, I think. Um, and that's one of the things I discover outside of fundamentalism because the family was like the cornerstone of fundamentalism and you're, you know, producing this quiverful and all of the high control behaviors focused on family dynamics. Um, so coming out of fundamentalism as a family, which I did with my children, um, it has been very complex. Is um, They were young children when I left. They were um, 10 and under. And they're adults now. So those, you know, those are their teenage years that we were healing. And also I was completely flipping how I parented. I, um, I parented as, I tried to, to parent as a fundamentalist when they were very young. And then a lot of my rebellion manifested in my motherhood because I was not willing to hurt them or to do things, follow fundamentalist practices basically that I thought were antithetical to the kind of mother I wanted to be. So in recovery, um, I was actively changing my parenting style um, in many times in ways that younger me would have thought was wrong or being a bad mom or a sinner, you know, whatever, whatever language we want to use. Um, so like with my work today, I'm just very private about my children. I don't talk about them. I like protect their privacy, their identities, their um, their young adulthood. This is my memoir and my interpretation of my experiences. And um, just like siblings can have, they have different childhoods because they're, you know, they have different versions of their parents. Um, their experience of what we went through is their own. And I don't want to speak for that. So um, it's very compartmentalized my family um now like mm -hmm. i'm i'm who they who i am to them as their mom you know mm -hmm. not as a trauma survivor what about your sibling that's separate your parents um they i have their support to do this work they've been supportive the whole way in um in recovery um but they are all still <laughs> they're all still evangelical christian in a very fundamentalist environment they do not agree with me ideologically, um, which is okay. That's their journey. Um, and they had a different experience than I did. And um, we have found ways, like a lot of people who have um, political and spiritual differences in their families, we have found ways to um, have boundaries, to use boundaries um, carefully while still being supportive of one another. That's, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what would you recommend for people going through? Um, so, yeah, this comes up a lot for survivors. It really does. I know so many survivors have to cut family off or they have to, you know, for their own safety, um, estrange themselves from situations that led to their trauma, you know. So what I always say is start with, are you safe? Um, can, you know, first, first and foremost is your safety. Um, sometimes periods of time are apart are necessary so that you can do the hard work of healing. Um, if the harm is continuing, that's a different situation. Like in my situation, my family was not the cause of my harm. So I didn't need to separate from them to stop harm from happening. Um, it was all external. Um, as for boundaries, I, I have something, a little technique I use called the I can list, um, which helps me have a more positive outlook than um, feeling trapped by my family or um, inundated with what I can't, I can't do. There are some things I cannot do 
And if I stay in that place where I'm like focused on what I can't do, I'll, I'll trigger panic attacks, you know, because I'll feel pressured that I have to do these things. Um, example, like a family, a family dinner during an election cycle or something, you know, something that's just too stressful. Um, so the I can list helps me flip the boundary to what I, what I can do because my boundaries are about me. So can I show up for an hour or two? Can I bring a dessert and then leave? Can I stay in a hotel instead of spending the night? Um, like trying out different scenarios and deciding what feels good in my body is, is helps me say, well, I can do this. And then if they don't like that, that's on them. But I can do this. And this is as far as I can go. Um, there have been years where the best I can do is to send a card, you know, or um, the best I can do is visit for a few days instead of be there for every activity. Um, I know people who have had to move away. Um, they lived next door to their families. They had to move, you know, because in order to stay in relationship, they couldn't live so close. Um, that all comes through boundary work and knowing what you can tolerate. Those are very good examples. And I think that's, a, you know, a good thing to realize, you know, what can I do first? That's a, I think that's a good example. I really like that. I might keep that. Yeah, it's a handy. It's a handy thing to reach for because your nervous system is activated when you feel like you can't do something and you're being pressured, and that makes it really hard to think clearly and make a sound decision. Um, so that that little trick is a nice way to take your power yes. back. How has this impacted your health? Oh, that's yeah. Um, <laughs> it. I'm better now. I'll, I'll start there. I'm better now. Um, it has been a journey. I um, was diagnosed with what they thought was MS in 2013, which I left. I escaped in 2007. I started trauma therapy in 2011. Um, and I was so sick in 2013 that um, I couldn't see the color white. Everything was pink. I was passing out all the time. Um, I was having week-long migraines, muscle body weakness. Um, couldn't sometimes sit up and hold my head up um, and they ran every test they knew around and um, and they guessed like they thought I had multiple sclerosis and would be in a wheelchair and blind um, and I got really angry at that because I, I did not accept that I came through this traumatic experience and did so much work to be safe and then that was going to be my story that I was going to end up like that so I started therapy actually to deal with the medical journey. Um, that's how I got into trauma therapy was um, how I made the switch from cognitive behavioral, which was not really working for me. Um, I, and I started going to trauma therapy in order to deal with medical trauma. Medical trauma was my gateway into understanding what trauma was and how, it's, how it impacts the body. Um, and then I had some really good doctors that kind of understood how to say, this is in your body and in your head without dismissing it and saying it's all in your head. Um, there's a difference there, you know, like it, it's not in my head. It's actually physically happening to me, but also it's in my head because it's got trauma roots. Um, and so it took years, but um, I made gains and strength. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot to this, this part of the story that is more than we could cover today, but um 
I think it's a, also an experience I hear reflected in a lot of survivors that they are, are they are experiencing physical impacts long term, sometimes very debilitating physical impacts because of what they've gone through, and phobias and things that they it's very hard to overcome. Um, and there can be a second wave of of medical journey that is really hard to navigate, especially in America where resources are tight and unavailable and very expensive and um, medicines have side effects that then you have to have, you know, help for your side effects. And, you know, it can be very complicated. I think it's an area that is just needs more research and more time and attention to it. And I think that's happening, but very slowly. I would agree with you. I mean, there's, there's a lot of resources and different things you can try, but no, the body, I mean, it sounds like your body said, I need help and I need help now. <laughs> yes <laughs> it was like shutting down really hard um, so mm-hmm. yeah i'm glad you listened to your body so um our, our bodies tell us what's going on um i can relate to that correct i can relate to that in many ways um how has this impacted your career Well, it became. <laughs> I wasn't planning on that. Um, <laughs> I have a background in marketing um, as a copywriter and a UX writer, which is user experience. Um, and I've always written for the internet, and and I had that very separated from what I did online. And my my online work was low key until about two and a half years ago, um, when my platform blew up. When I started making reels about the Duggar family and the, and the IBLP and Christian fundamentalist abuses in general, um, that became an extra like full-time job. So I had um, a couple years there where I was doing two very demanding full-time jobs, 80 to 90 hours a week of content creation plus my my job. And that included writing my memoir. Um, so I was just working really hard for a long time. Um, and then um, through some other changes in my life, um, it's this year, like I sold the book last year and this year I've been traveling most of the year. Um, so my content work is my, is my career and I feel called to this work. I feel like it's, um, working with survivors is probably always what I meant to be. And, um, I'm committed. I'm committed to that. Well, you, I mean, I've watched the reels and I can relate to them. So I know there's a lot of other people that can relate to them as well. Um, how has this impacted your finances? Um, <laughs> that's a funny question. Oh, and I saw it on the list. I was like, well, I mean, that's a fluid thing too. So much of this is fluid. Life after fundamentalism moves. Um, I would say money, my attitudes towards money have had to be deconstructed because in fundamentalism, money was, um, handled very differently than out here in the real world. Um, you know, the, you were ashamed if you wanted it and uh, you had to tithe, but the people in power all have it. The people on the bottom don't have it. Um, there's a lot of poverty involved. Um, as I got out of fundamentalism and I was a single mom, I had to you know work on a career, which is not something that I was equipped to do at the time, had not spent any time in my life preparing for. Um, and so I had to start from the ground up and build a life, um, and build a career. So, um, that took a lot of work. It was eventually successful. Um, 
And then I sold my book well, which was wonderful. But then I also got a divorce, which was not wonderful for my second husband. Um, so I think I just view money now as a tool. I understand that it will come and it will go. Um, and it's an, an important aspect of agency and freedom. It's very hard to become free from high control groups without the accessibility of, to money. Um, so I spend a lot of time like thinking and talking about how women can be, have their own finances and have um, no shame around needing to build them and to be smart with their money. Uh, there's some wealth coaches that I follow that I share a lot that just teach women the basics of money because in patriarchy, we're not really taught how to effectively use it as a tool. And it becomes very emotional and a method of control. So, and I come from a lot of financial abuse. So this, this is an ongoing area too for deconstruction. Yes. Um, I just had an interview with the lawyer and she talked about um, banks working with those getting out of abusive relationships and how mm -hmm. um, banks are struggling for um, customers right now. So, um, you know, well, to take that into consideration when you're working you know, with some of the banks. So they're trying to change the banking world so it's more easily accessible to those who've gotten out of those abusive relationships because credit can be ruined because of mm. being in those types of relationships. Absolutely. That's important. Or yeah. uh, how has this impacted your parenting? Oh, it completely changed it. Um, I think the biggest the biggest thing that I changed was I started taking my children seriously at a young age. Um, I did not look at them as um, something to mold and to force to conform into a you know mindset that I decided for them. Um, I never pressured them to choose a, a spiritual path, a religious path. Um, I didn't shame them for ordinary healthy development. Um, they're given unconditional love, which is not something in fundamentalism. Um, there was no, like, when I stopped spanking them, there was no corporal punishment. Um, I think I think parenting is an area that completely reformed from one side to the other side and it is ongoing because even though they're adults um they have their own traumatic pasts to unpack and i very many times am the only advocate that they had but i'm also sometimes complicit in the harm that they experienced and they need to be able to come to me and say you chose this and it hurt and i need to talk about it and so parenting today looks like supporting what they want for their lives, but also being always available when, when they are in process and not getting defensive and, and um, shutting them down. I think that's important, um, especially, at, you know, coming out of fundamentalism. There's a lot of, there's a lot of scars. Yeah. Yeah. And parents can be really defensive about the, why those scars happened because they meant well. Most parents, the majority of parents, meant well and believed leadership telling them that these methods and techniques would be in the best interest of their family and their child. And it's 
the fruit does not bear that. The fruit, the fruit bears harm. Um, it'd be really hard for a parent to admit their part in that. Um, also, abusers are made; they're not born. So that's like looking at the fruit of practices is extremely important um, because there's a recipe. There's a recipe to create an abuser, and there's a recipe to create a healthy person. Yes, that is true. Um, is there anything else you like to add on parenting? Just love your kids. Um, give them unconditional love, and um, there is no idea that is more important than a person. So... I mean, that's the most unfundamentalist thing somebody can do is decide that they are not going to place ideology over people. And the first place that starts is your children. That's very well put. Um, what are some of the best advice you could give someone leaving Bill Gothard's teachings or any other cult for that matter? Uh, it's a little unconventional, but I tell people to take lots of walks. Um, walking will help move trauma through your body. It helps move energy through your body. But the most important thing that walking does is allow you to hear yourself. And it can be anxiety producing to somebody who is not accustomed to hearing themselves or does a lot of self-censure um, and judgment and, um, you know, harmful self-talk. But it's an important step to give yourself time to hear yourself and re get re get in touch again with your intuition, your own um, conscience. The other thing I say a lot is um, inner child therapy was one of the most important modalities I used because it got me connected to who I was before the cult, who I was before high control thought and and all of the situations that led make you made me vulnerable to that group um so that looks like um inner child work looks like a lot of spending time with little you like what you like to do as a little child um i like to color i like to climb trees i like to play outside so um as i was leaving and deconstructing that thought i, I spent a lot of time doing the things that i loved to do when i was six um also Surrounding yourself with other survivors who have been out is important because the number one thing that people talk about is the loss of community. It's very hard, like especially I had a formal shunning that was part of my experience. It is really hard when you leave religion to lose the community aspect. That's that's a motivator for people joining it in the first place is to have a sense of belonging. And because there is, um, there are so many outsiders now you know exiles and survivors that it's important to go looking for where those people are and to surround yourself with new um people who can understand what you're going through what is the um sorry um uh, what do you do for self-care um covered this a little bit earlier but um self-care looks like taking care of me like like as if I was a little baby that needed a mom. Um, I put myself to bed. I take myself for walks. I make sure she gets a bath and she eats enough food. Like it's really simple. Um, and these are the things that people struggle with. Um, taking care of your body. 
um, is first moving your body every day, yoga, walking. Um, I like to run. I like to play outside. I like to do move my body in ways that feel fun, like dancing and stuff like that. Um, remembering to play, um, time alone and doing the things that I like. I'm an introvert. I'm an Enneagram four. Um, so I like to go to the movies alone. Um, I like to take road trips alone and travel alone. I've been solo traveling most of 2023 and it's been incredible, um, to be with who I like. I like me. So it's nice to spend time with me. Um, and not taking care of, I, as a mom of many kids and, and, you know, I've been, I was mom so young. I take care of everybody around me really easily and, and intuitively. So it's, um, self-care for me, sometimes taking myself out of situations where I might revert into, um, caring, caretaking. And sometimes that means that most of the time it means physical removal. Like I need to go be alone or I will start taking care of people, <laughs> which is okay in moderation. It just doesn't need to be to the extent that I do it. Hmm. What is the best advice or what is the best advice ever given to you about leaving fundamentalism? Mm-hmm. It was ask questions, question everything. It's the piece of, I go back to this almost every day, question everything. Um, when you have a penchant for the comfort of fundamentalism, which is, it is very comforting to have the right answer, to have um, a, a formula that people tell you works. Fundamentalism thrives in chaotic moments in history. So we have all this chaos happening in our world right now. It also makes us as, on the whole, very vulnerable to fundamentalist thinking. Um, because we're looking for surety. Um, so being able to question it and not take one person's, um, you know, viewpoint as the gospel to refuse gurus. Like I will not have a guru again. I will not have a holy person. I will not, um, adhere to a single book for wisdom. Um, those are important, like boundaries to put on to put it on the experience, but also, um, even that, like, how is that working for me? Check the fruit in my life frequently. Um, what, what is, how, what is what I'm doing producing? And is that healthy, positive, you know, takes self-reflection and self-awareness. It's ongoing to live a life of inquiry is as an ongoing situation. How has this impacted your faith? Um, I always answer this with, um, I identify now as spiritually private. I really, um, like I said a few minutes ago, I'm, I, I like a good binary, I like a good firm black and white answer. People are always trying to pin me down. Like, how do you, what do you believe today? Um, as soon as I answer that question, I put myself in a box and there's a very real part of me that loves to, to be in the right box. Like, oh yes, they're happy with me because I said the thing they want me to say, um, and they, they've made sure I'm safe or, or I'm somebody they want to hear. And that people-pleasing part of me gets toxic really quickly and it's not genuine. So um, I, I, have to, I have to answer the question by giving myself a space to say that, that is fluid, that is private. And if I, um, how I live, my character is all you need to know. Um, people should be looking at me. They should be questioning the things I say. They should be um, checking me against other resources that um, land well for them because I'm not anybody's guru either. Um, 
and and my character should be all they need to know. Am I am I the kind of person they want to spend time listening to? They can answer that for themselves. I I need to have integrity. You know, that's how I that's how I answer that. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah. Um, just that, like, I know this is a recovery themed podcast and, um, I I like to remind survivors that you deserve to heal. The healing is possible and you deserve to fight for yourself. Always be your first advocate. Choose yourself. Um, we are conditioned to wait on a savior in high control religion, wait on rescue, somebody else to see our need and meet it and to take us seriously. Um, but salvation and, and rescue starts with us taking our own suffering seriously so if you can remember to choose yourself and to advocate for yourself that's the spirit of a survivor okay i think that's it thanks to you and uh, okay. thanks guys for listening this is rachel recovery we'll be back next actually we'll be taking a break after this um this will be my last episode of the year because i am taking the holidays off and i will be running um the best of rachel for the next of 2023 and we'll be back in 2024 all right thanks guys